is a little bit rated R, but uh, that's okay. Everyone here is an adult, I think, that I could see on the list. Hopefully, I'm taking a look. Um, I think everyone here is a, is a mature adult. Uh, so somebody said, this is an anonymous question here. And it says, I heard certain types of sex are not considered intercourse and therefore not halachically considered cheating. Is this true? Specifically worrying, wor- wondering about oral and anal and if the rules are different for a man and a woman. So this is a little bit mature content, but, you know, we can we can handle that. You know, there's nothing in um, in in Judaism that ever forbids discussion of uh, sensitive matters like that. In fact, I mean, the not only is the Tanakh very explicit and direct about uh, matters of intimacy, but the Talmud is even more so. Uh, very, very uh, open and frank uh, in its discussion of sexual matters, so we shouldn't feel any uh, squeamishness. That's something that we inherited uh, from our uh, non-Jewish neighbors who have a uh, puritanical view of these issues, Um, and we don't have to go with that. There is a sense of, obviously, propriety and appropriateness and, um, and, and discussing these matters in the right context and in the right way, in a way that is appropriate, uh, and is, uh, you know, is not vulgar, but there is, um, but it's not that the su- subject itself should never be taken uh, in any way as being inherently inappropriate. So uh, the, the various kinds of, um, of intercourse that could be had are, uh, there, there are different, uh, there, there are different statuses in terms of, uh, halachically, in terms of these different behaviors, um, the, uh, the, is there a difference in terms of cheating? Well, cheating is not really a, a halachic concept. Cheating is a moral, ethical concept that pertains to the, uh, you know, to a relationship with another person. So um, what you define as cheating, uh, it might be somewhat subjective. So the question is uh, whether this is considered to be um, sexual intimacy or not. So all of these activities are obviously considered sexual intimacy. Um, any physical contact, really, with uh, a member of the opposite sex that's intended in a uh, in a romantic or uh, uh, or sexual way is considered to be uh, something that should be reserved for marriage. So in terms of cheating, insofar as cheating is concerned, or premarital behaviors, so all of these things would not be recommended from the halachic standpoint would not be allowed, that's for sure. Um, is there a difference? Yes. I mean, um, actual intercourse, uh, which means vaginal or anal intercourse, are uh, considered uh, full intercourse according to halacha, which would have certain implications um, if there was adultery involved. Um, and the implication can be that they can require in certain cases that the couple get divorced if a, it, according to the the Torah, a man is allowed to have more than one wife. So there are, yeah, vaginal and anal are both considered the same in, in, in according to halacha. They're both considered sexual intercourse according to halacha, hundred um, percent. Oral is not considered to be sexual intercourse according to halacha. Although, as I said, any kind of intimate uh, relation between a man and a woman that's physical uh, is supposed to be reserved for marriage. So even though that might not be considered intercourse, it still would be something that is not allowed according to Jewish law. Now, the implications of that in terms of a relationship would be that um, 
in, and here is where there is a difference that because men and women, because in halacha, men can have more than one wife. So that means that the, it's not regarded necessarily as adulterous for a man to have relations with more than one woman because those women could all be his wives in theory. Whereas a woman can only be married to one man at a time, according to halacha. And if she is married to, uh, to a man and she engages in one of those behaviors, uh, and she enga- engages in one of those behaviors with uh, another man, so that can actually be grounds for divorce or even a requirement of divorce in certain cases um, because of the, uh, the adulterous nature of that, uh, of that interaction. But the same would be true. A man would be considered committing adultery if he engaged in those behaviors with a woman who was married to another man. The only case that we don't rec- recognize as adultery is where the woman is unmarried. In that case, it wouldn't be adultery, but it could be a violation of any other host of uh, other prohibitions, including obviously family purity laws, nida, apply whether the woman is married or unmarried. So that's something that, generally speaking, women don't go to the mikveh and are not, um, uh, you know, and are therefore not allowed to be involved in sexual intercourse before marriage because they don't go to the mikveh until they are married. So um, that's, a, that's another element, another aspect. So yes, there is a little bit of a double standard in halacha, but that, that's because of the permissibility of more than one wife uh, that the Torah uh, allows the man to, uh, to have. But uh, in terms of the appropriateness of the behaviors, these would all be uh, inappropriate. Somebody made a comment here that, you know, it sounds like a Bill Clinton issue. Well, um, what Bill Clinton, what, what he did or didn't do, I, I don't really know. And um, there were a lot of allegations uh, about him uh, over the years with various women. But um, yeah, his claim actually would be accurate according to... Uh, according to halakha, that that behavior is not considered intercourse. Is it considered appropriate? Obviously not. Is it considered permitted? Definitely not. But, um, but is it considered intercourse? No. And, the, and, and again, the only difference between whether something is intercourse or not <clears throat> is whether it would, if, if a woman who was married to, uh, a married woman engaged in that behavior with another man, would she then be required to be divorced from her current husband? Um, that's the only difference. Um, somebody asked if the man is not married to the woman, if she is not his wife, is it adulterous? If she's married to another man, then it would be. Um, but if they're both single, so premarital intercourse is prohibited mainly because of the issue of mikveh, that a woman doesn't usually go to the mikveh before, um, before she's married. So therefore, there's the prohibition of nida that applies in the case of premarital intercourse. And there's also, uh, at least according to many rabbis, also a general prohibition of premarital intercourse that is not as strict as adultery, but is also, uh, is also a prohibition of uh, you know, promiscuous behavior, um, which is its own prohibition that it should be reserved for marriage. Um, I hope that answers the question. Is, it, is there a next question or a follow-up question to that? So... Can a married couple, is this from the, is this the follow-up? This is a follow-up or is this a new question? This is a new question? So, yeah, new. Can a married couple agree to have other people in the bedroom or agree to each have sex with other people if it's mutual? So meaning like an open marriage kind of a situation. So definitely that wouldn't be allowed, um, except under the very uh, limited 
uh, conditions where the man is allowed to have another wife. Now, nowadays, we don't have that sort of a thing um, uh, practically. We don't have men having more than one wife. Um, so, it, so from our perspective today, that would never happen. But it wouldn't be allowed because, um, in fact, even for a couple that is engaged in marital relations with one another, they're not supposed to even be thinking about anybody besides their partner or their spouse during that time. Um, and if they are, then that could be uh, a reason to be concerned about the relationship and that maybe there are some issues that need to be addressed. So um, uh, that, that's something for a marital counselor. That's not necessarily something for a rabbi. But uh, or a rabbi who maybe is serving as your uh, marital counselor would, would address those issues. But to have somebody in the bedroom, even mentally, uh, other than your spouse, is, uh, is something that should not be done. It would be considered adulterous under many circumstances, like we mentioned before. If the woman is married, if one of and and is engaged in in sexual behavior with another man, if the then that would always be adultery. Um, there can also be issues of. Uh, uh, all of the other violations that I mentioned before that can come into play uh, in any kind of uh, promiscuous situation that is more promiscuous than a uh, monogamous relationship. Uh, but the, the essential point is that even within, uh, a, even in a situation where the man had more than one wife, he's not allowed to be even thinking about uh, the other wife when he's with one of them. So it, the, the halakha really wants the, relation, the sexual relationship to be a loving uh, relationship between two partners that deepens their connection to one another and uh, not something that is simply a uh, geared towards the pleasure of the individual. And what ends up happening uh, whenever you involve other people is that uh, inevitably it causes damage to the core relationship. Uh, even when the, even an open relationship, so-called open relationships, they're very dangerous and they tend to lead to uh, uh, to deeper problem, they tend to actually first of all expose a deeper problem, but uh, then exacerbate that problem um, b- because of the introduction of other people into the into the mix. So it's it's not advisable even for uh, I would say from a psychological perspective, but uh, from a halachic perspective, definitely not. If the married man is with a non-married woman, not his wife, is it, it is not adultery. So according technically, again according to halacha. Since the man is allowed, would be allowed to uh, have a second wife, and maybe this w- woman would become his new wife, so we wouldn't call that adultery, but it would be something that is uh, prohibited for other reasons. There would be many reasons why it might be prohibited. First of all, premarital sexual relations, according to most rabbis, is a, is a separate prohibition altogether. In addition to the prohibitions of uh, nida that would apply in most situations as well, so you're going to have other issues that uh, that that preclude that kind of behavior, even when it's not classified as adultery. Adultery being, let's say, a more strict prohibition, but not the only prohibition that could come into play here. Okay, new question: What are your thoughts on ayin hara? Does it exist? Do you think other people's envious thoughts can damage you? Actually, years ago, uh, I gave a class on this on a Saturday night in the community um, that was uh, hosted by one of the families in, in the community. It was several years back. And, um, and I think that Ayin Hara is a an misunderstood but a very underestimated concept. Um, and as I said in that lecture then, uh, I think I'm, I'm more afraid of Ayin Hara than most people, even though 
the, the, you know, I think I was expected to come out and say that Ayin Hara is not real and it's not something to be worried about and it's, uh, you know, it's hocus pocus and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be concerned with it. I said actually the opposite. When you really understand what Ayin Hara is, it's something much worse than what most people think. Because since people interpret Ayin Hara as being some kind of a, um, a voodoo kind of a force that people are looking at them a certain way and, and then therefore if they wear a red string around their arm or they say Bali Ayin Hara or other magical formulas, they can prevent the, um, the force of the Ayin Hara from, uh, from affecting them. So uh, this, this comes from a misunderstanding of what Ayin Hara actually is. And um, when, you, when, you, when you grasp what Ayin Hara actually is, so then um, it actually becomes much scarier than, uh, than it, what, what, you, what you think when you imagine that it's just a force that can be warded off with uh, ritual behaviors. Because actually what Ayin Hara is talking about is the deep-seated resentment that people have towards one another uh, based on other people's success. And, um, and if you look at all of the cases of Ayin Hara that the rabbis identify, they always have to do with flaunting. They always have to do with some kind of a showing off that the person is attracting attention to themselves and doesn't realize unwittingly that what they're really doing is inviting a lot of animosity uh, to be directed towards them. They're inviting upon, and they're, they're uh, you know, bringing upon themselves a lot of negative energy. Not a negative energy in a supernatural way, actually, but just a natural negative energy that people uh, feel a, um, a, an animosity towards them or a jealousy of them or a resentment of them. And that feeling, those feelings operate beneath the surface and sometimes um, without our awareness and most of the time perhaps without our awareness, um, without the awareness of the person who is casting the ayin hara and without the, person who, uh, uh, the awareness of the person who's receiving the ayin hara. And when it comes to light, is in a moment of vulnerability when the person who is resented, when the person who is the successful person, who is the boastful person, who is the flaunting person has a moment of weakness or a moment of vulnerability. At that moment, everybody who had ayin hara on them uh, is happy, doesn't come to their aid, doesn't want to, uh, doesn't want to help them because they feel like, you know what? They deserved it. They had it coming to them. They, uh, you know, deep down inside, the feeling was that they were hoping, they were wishing that disaster would visit this person. And that kind of a negative feeling being directed towards you is a very dangerous thing. It's a very, very dangerous thing. And so it's not to be underestimated, actually. When the rabbis say we should pray every day to keep us away from Ayin Hara, they're not kidding. They're not talking about a kind of a magical force of Ayin Hara. They're talking about the natural, you don't even realize. You could walk into a situation and something you do or something you say could tick another person off, could rub another person the wrong way, give them the wrong impression. You know how powerful first impressions are. And all of a sudden they're looking at you from a certain vantage point that's very negative. They have it out for you. They, you know, they might not even realize the extent to which they are possessed by that feeling, but it will manifest itself in their actions in all kinds of different ways. And that's why you see that people, like the rabbis say, that there are certain people who are immune to Ayin Hara. Who are those people? People who are uh, exceedingly humble. 
there is very little or no ayin hara directed towards them. People who are servants of the public and who are genuine, authentic, devoted servants of the public who never show any self-interest or any kind of an ambition uh, for themselves are immune to ayin hara to a certain extent, meaning, to, meaning that their success is not resented. Because, when, like for example, if you think of people who are very philanthropic, they give a lot of tzedakah. So even though they might be very wealthy, so sometimes you'll see a person who's extremely wealthy and successful and certain people are very proud of it and they're very impressed. And some people will always have a jealousy, a resentment, a feeling of, oh, they don't deserve it. And, you know, why don't I have that? Even if they don't articulate it, they might think that or feel that. But if that same person is selflessly devoted to the community, is so charitable, that they're endlessly giving, that they're so generous, that they're so caring, they're so compassionate, and they don't hold themselves above others on a pedestal, but they are humble in their, in their behavior, then people don't have that ayin hara feeling towards them. People don't have that kind of resentment. They say, you know what? Good. May Hashem bless them with even more because everything that Hashem blesses them with, they're using it for the good of the community. And that's why it says about Yosef that the people of Mitzrayim didn't have ayin hara towards him because he was so honest and so sincere in all of his dealings and everything that he did for the Egyptians that he never tried in any way to promote himself or to seek any advantage personally for himself. And therefore, they never felt any resentment towards him even as he was controlling it, he was very controlling and he was very demanding of them actually um, when he was dispersing the food during the famine. And yet they never felt any resentment towards him because they knew that he was selfless in his devotion to the Egyptian people and he, he was really uh, genuine in his desire just to do what was best for them. So that was the, um, so can people's thoughts damage you? The, the answer is absolutely yes, but not in a magical way. Now, why is that more scary? It's more scary because if it's in a magical way, well, magical forces can be repelled by other magical actions. If I believe that Ayin Hara is a magical force, that somebody's casting a spell on me, then I go and get a red string around my arm or I go and get a special thing to put on my wall or the rabbi gives me a certain thing to say, formula to say, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm uh, protected from the Ayin Hara. But if Ayin Hara is something psychological that people have a resentment and I have to be worried not to feed into people's natural resentment and jealousy, um, because it's a very dangerous force, actually. It's a dangerous force that can come back to bite you. And I'm sure that everyone's been in a situation where we've had people close to us that maybe we've let down our guard, and without realizing it, they're building up certain negative feelings towards us, certain negative affect is directed towards us. And without us realizing it, it bubbles up to the surface at a time when we never expected it. And we didn't realize that certain things we said or that we did um, exacerbated it. And um, all along, this person might have been harboring these feelings and they could have ended up manifesting themselves in even more dangerous ways. You never know. And that's why, uh, you know, at a time of need or at a time when we're vulnerable, it might come out that this person that was upset with us, that was resentful of us, that was wishing for our downfall, will now have the opportunity to see that happen. It might be against us, might turn against us. So it is a very dangerous force. Look at what happened with the brothers in Yosef in the beginning of the story of Yosef, not in the, start, not in the part where he, was, uh, where he was employed in Egypt, but in the beginning of the story of Yosef, when Yosef was uh, you know, sharing his dreams with his brothers, that was a real case of Ayin Hara. He was feeding into, he was stoking the flames of their jealousy and their resentment towards him. And we didn't realize what a time bomb he set off 
that they actually came along and tried to almost kill him. And even his father didn't realize that by favoring him, he was also stoking those flames and bringing Ayin Hara, bringing that negative uh, affect uh, uh, you know, out and, and causing it to be directed towards Yosef. So yes, it's actually a very, very dangerous thing. In employment, you know, in, in, in workplaces, it's very dangerous. In school, it's very dangerous, whether you're dealing with professors or you're dealing with fellow students. You know, in families, it can be very dangerous that people are sensitive. And the effect that we have on their emotions um, is sometimes disproportionate to what we think. We're having a bigger impact on them in the nuances of our behavior than we really think. And that li- those little things, those little irritations, those little resentments can actually build up in a person and become a formidable uh, you know, threat to us in, you know, over time. Think about people who, you know, alienated their co-workers, you know, and then a situation comes up and they throw them under the bus because all along they, they didn't like them or whatever the case may be. So many variations of it. But yes, Ayanara is something, that's why people's envious thoughts can damage us because we don't see them. They hide them. They might not even be fully aware of them. We're certainly not fully aware of them. And then at the moment of uh, opportunity, they will, uh, they will come out. Um, and I, I think I mentioned, I might've mentioned in that, um, in that shiur, it's been a long time, it's been many years, I barely remember it except the topic. But um, I, I, I think in the context of that shiur, I may have mentioned that, um, that there was one story of a rabbi who got himself into quite a lot of trouble. Um, and this rabbi was a rabbi that was maybe not that well-liked. I would say he was respected, but not very well-liked. He was kind of seen as a little bit uh, 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 maybe arrogant, maybe a little bit boastful, maybe a little bit high on himself. And so when this situation emerged that he got in trouble, they dropped him like a hot potato. They didn't defend him. They didn't try to work things out. They didn't, nobody said anything conciliatory about him in the newspapers when the situation uh, came to light. He was dropped immediately. Why? Because all that time there were people who had grudges against him. There were people who had negative feelings towards him. They just didn't have an opportunity to express them. But when they did, when that opportunity presented itself, the force was like unimaginable. And I think that is what Ayn Hara really can do. Yes, what's, a, what, what's our, is there, can we, how can, okay, so this question is really, um, this question is really specifically uh, or mainly related to what's going on right now, I guess. That how can we feel like we're part of a vibrant Jewish community without going to synagogue and weddings and celebrating holidays like we usually do? So this is a, this is a challenge that is, um, particular to what we're all experiencing right now and what we've been struggling with for uh, almost a year now. Um, I think that if anything, uh, what, what unites us is more than physical proximity, and that is one of the lessons we have been able to learn from this challenging time, that even without physical proximity, we've been able to experience uh, a sense of unity. And... Obviously, the gift of having the technology that allows us to have classes like this or other events um, from a distance is a blessing that is, um, you know, that maybe we didn't realize the, uh, the full potential of that blessing until we were forced to utilize it um, in these ways. But the, the question is, what makes a, a vibrant Jewish community? Uh, what makes community? Um, and maybe 
what this situation challenges us to think about is what is really the essence of community, because maybe we sometimes associate community with physical togetherness, with sharing in events in the same concrete space. But maybe that's not really what community is. Community is really more essentially sharing the same concerns, sharing the same values, uh, working together to solve the same problems and trying to accomplish common goals. I think that's really the definition of community. So we're each of us hopefully still trying to do that and participate in those, uh, those aspects of Jewish life in our own way each of us in our own way, even as we've been physically distant for a lot of the past year. And so uh, there's definitely an absence of the social aspect of community. And I think that we all, um, that we all have experienced the diminished uh, joy uh, that, that comes with not being able to physically be together for happy occasions. However, uh, I think it's challenged us to think uh, about what really makes us one, and again, going back, and maybe it's, you know, it's opportune to go back to the story of Yosef and his brothers again, that uh, it seems like a theme that we're revisiting again and again. But uh, the fact is that Yosef saw himself very much as a part of his family, even when he was cast out. And he was always a, uh, he always saw his destiny as linked to get to, to the destiny of his brothers and, and, and his family even when he was alienated from them, and even when he didn't exactly see ultimately uh, what part he would he would be playing in it. And I think that uh, you know that shows you that the sense of community is communal purpose, uh, and and a sense of communal destiny, and a sense that we're working together to resolve uh, the same problems. That when we're when we're facing, and I think that one of the beauty, beautiful things is that you know look. We've all we've gone through some some very very challenging experiences, and we've we've lost some beloved community members and family members during this time. Uh, we've even had some um, some joyous occasions of some weddings and uh, and happier times. And one of the things that is uh, uh, that that I think we've learned is that we we can still all share in uh, these experiences from a distance because. The essence of the sharing is not a physical sharing. It's a, it's a sharing that, it, that comes with being kindred spirits with one another and being united in the same concerns and the same values and the same purpose. And that we still have and that we can experience from a distance. So does it have the same reassuring feeling as uh, being 1,000 people packed into the uh, social hall of 54 that's only allowed to have 500 people or have whatever the actual capacity is of that room, um, it doesn't have that feeling. And we all miss that feeling, believe it. I didn't think I would miss that feeling of being crushed and trampled on and not being able to move. But somehow, uh, you know, we, we all miss that feeling, actually. Um, so we, we appreciate the blessing of being able to, to have big groups um, and, and big celebrations. But um, I think that this experience has taught us that what really makes us one is not physical proximity, and that's an important lesson. Um, and, and so we can feel like a vibrant Jewish community because we're all still pursuing the same objectives and goals together and still working out, uh, working together to try to work out the same and overcome the same challenges together that we were before. And hopefully from this experience, we'll be all the better uh, when, when we're able to physically be together again, hopefully soon. What are your thoughts on having a TV in the home? Well, I mean, I have one, but I don't know how to turn it on. 
Um, nowadays, TV and movies can tend to lean against Jewish values, and it's very hard to draw the line between what is harmful and not, or not. I'm just reading the question. It's definitely not black and white, although I remember TVs that were black and white. That doesn't say that in the question. But I'm curious to know, what is the balance? I guess this can apply to social media too, as it's also very relevant nowadays. So yeah, uh, for sure, social media is the more pervasive um, uh, engagement with media nowadays, especially among the youth. I think it's, it's important to note that TV and movies and books too, all of them express values. Um, and that there's no value-neutral film, there's no value-neutral story or book. And so whatever you are taking in, whatever media you're consuming, you're absorbing the values of that media as well. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with the values of that media. I'm just saying you're also being exposed to the values of that media. And so... If you want to take a very simplistic example, uh, love is a theme that is found in almost every movie, TV show, even Disney story. There's some element of love in most of the stories, most of the movies, not everyone, but most, uh, most songs, even the songs about the holidays that the uh, that our uh, Gentile neighbors enjoy, almost all of them nowadays are about love around the holidays. It doesn't really have to do with the holidays. You know, the, love is a pervasive theme of media, of music, of theater throughout. Now, the self-evident assumption, you know, the, the idea that it's self-evident that love conquers all and love is the ultimate value. Romantic love is the ultimate good that people should seek and it justifies everything and it's something one should give their life for. Okay, this is a this is a value that is communicated in uh, the media that we consume. The the intrinsic value of human love. Now, that's a case where you could say like somebody's like like the question says and again, I don't know who's asking the actual official question. So, whoever wrote this question said it's definitely not black and white. And it isn't black and white because it's not that we're rejecting love. We don't think love is bad. We do think that there's a value to love, of course. Love of uh, one another, love of Hashem. The idea of love is a value. But is it the ultimate value? Is romantic love the ultimate value? Is living happily ever after the ultimate value? We don't see it that way. We think that creating a family is a means to an end. It's not the end of the story. It's actually only one stage along the journey. And so, whereas I always think it's funny that fairy tales end with the two, usually with the two protagonists getting married, and it says, and they lived happily ever after. And then everyone who's actually married says, that's actually not what happened, definitely not what happened, you know? You know? Because it's not that simple. Getting married is only the beginning of the journey. The, the process goes on. And so... Love is very important, and the Torah actually, and, the, and especially in Shira Shirim, the Song of Songs, uses human love as a way to express and to teach about the love between uh, human beings and Hashem. So it's a powerful force. It's a, it's a positive and constructive force. Um, it, it's something that can be very good, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Whereas the media will communicate to us, will convey to us that it is the ultimate 
good. It is the ultimate force. It is the ultimate um, objective of life is to experience romantic love. And this is where we would take issue with that message. But there are many other similar messages. I remember, um, you know, and sometimes when you overanalyze media, by the way, you can ruin it for yourself forever. So you have to be very careful when you do this. But I remember that um, years ago, uh, my, you know, I, I went to see Les Mis with my wife. I, maybe some of you are familiar with that. Maybe it's too old fashioned. I'm not sure. But, you know, anyway, she really likes it. So I decided we would go and see um, a performance of it. And we did. And afterwards, I was saying to her, you know, this story, the whole story of Les Mis is a Christian morality story because it's about the law that's, you know, the law that is pursuing this person who is acting out of charity and love and, 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 and that charity and love is being pursued by law. The law is evil and, and charity and love are good. Even when they mean a violation of the law, even when stealing is involved, the whole thing is about the guy steals bread, whatever. It's not even, you know, not going into the details of the story. But the underlying message of Les Mis, if you really look at the narrative, is Christian versus Jewish. It never says that. But the, the typical... Um, message of Christianity is that Judaism is the, is the religion of law and it's a religion that is unforgiving and harsh and very technical and very demanding. And our religion is a religion of faith and love and charity. And don't worry about being so technical about the law. The guy was stealing because he was poor and he, to, he needed bread. You know, it, it was a case of poverty and what, you know, and, and, and love should conquer all and we shouldn't care about the law. So the idea of law versus love is very much, um, you know, at the center of that story. And unfortunately, I ruined the story by talking about that, because then once you start to look at it, then you're like, well, now I can't unsee that. And I realize now I'm watching it. I'm being indoctrinated uh, with values that are uh, that, that are. Uh, yeah, sorry, that are not my own. But it's important whenever you watch, whenever you consume media to try to think, what is the message that is being conveyed. And sometimes the message is not bad. Like there was a movie years ago called Inside, a kid's movie, Inside Out. You know, that talked about becoming aware of your emotions, uh, becoming aware of the different forces that play themselves out in, you know, in, in, within you. And that a person is, a, you know, a, and a person should be in touch with that. And I thought that was a really creative way of looking at it. Or, you know, you have the Lego movie, which actually the Lego movie is a great movie. It actually has a message to it that is a great teachable message. So there is media out there that whether it is intentionally so or unintentionally so can be really valuable. Uh, you know, classic is like The Matrix. Now that's an old movie, but that movie has, uh, you know, has a message to it. And the message is actually very profound that are we living in touch with, would we rather not look at the reality around us and live in a bubble and live in a dream? Um, you know, or are we all just living in a fantasy because we're in denial about reality? Would we want to know the ultimate reality or would we rather stay in the bubble? It's an amazing movie um, and a metaphor for that, uh, for that dilemma that we all face. It's really, it's, it's a very Jewish dilemma. It's something that you can utilize as an opportunity to talk about um, moral issues and, uh, and, and philosophical issues that really are relevant. So 
from my perspective, you know, media, like most things, maybe like most things, um, is uh, something that is neither good nor bad in and of itself. But it has to do with how you approach it. And I, I would say that rather than rather than take the position of no, yes or no, take the position of, first of all, being careful and selecting things that you think will stimulate some kind of thought. It doesn't have to be that you're going to agree with every piece of media to which you expose yourself. Sometimes you might disagree, but you can expose yourself to things and then critically process them and think through them and use them as a challenge to, you know, if your kids have seen something, say, hey, wait a second, what do you think, do, do you agree with, what, what do you think the message was of that movie? What do you think the lesson was that it was trying to convey? What do you think was the motive of the people who made it? I could think of one that actually, another kid's, and I'm talking kids' movies all the time because that's, you know, that's the stage of life I'm in right now, but like Zootopia was another movie that actually had a social agenda very thinly veiled behind the movie. Now, some people will love the social agenda that's thinly veiled behind that movie, and some people will not love the social agenda that's thinly veiled, and some will say it's debatable and it's a great opportunity to discuss, okay? Right, you know, um, it, it's a, it, and so that's an example where there is a, you know, th- there's something to be looked at and say to, say to yourself or say to your kids. I remember my, one, of, one of the things that my rabbi, one of my rabbis when I was growing up said was, it's okay to watch something, but never go into the zone. That's what he would say. Don't go into the zone. Meaning, always be able to step back and say, what was that movie really trying to convey? What was the meaning there? What was the idea? Do I agree with it? Do I not agree with it? Was it playing upon certain emotions that really I should be more critical about and, and it was trying to indoctrinate me in certain ways I should be more critical about? Or was it really sending a message that was genuinely true? You know, why does it appeal to people is always a question. If it appeals to people a great deal, sometimes that means that it's hitting the lowest common denominator and we should be more suspect about the value of it than if it's something that is a little bit more of a, uh, you know, one of these indie films or one of these, you know, uh, uh, the, the films that are the less popular ones that maybe are appealing to a, a more educated crowd and might have a different kind of a message. I'm not saying that that's always the case. Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes the, the, the ones that are popular are also, um, also have a deeper layer of meaning. So I, I wouldn't want to dismiss them. But the question, the, the issue is, number one, obviously ruling out things that are clearly and obviously and explicitly against our values. You don't, want to, you don't need to expose yourself to that. But when you do engage with media to teach the tools of critically evaluating, not just factual uh, you know, fake news versus real news type of thing. I'm not talking about that only. Being able to evaluate what is factual and not factual. But be able to ask yourself, what was that story? What was that movie? What was that song? Whatever it is. Try, and, and you can do this with everything. And I used to do this with music. I used to take popular songs, different popular songs with my Hebrew school when I was in Maryland. I used to do this as an activity and say, what do you think is the message of this song that this person wrote? And is it something you agree with or not? You know, when you really look at the lyrics, what is it conveying? And do you think that it's conveying a truth or is it conveying something that's an untruth? And so being able to learn to be critical consumers of media is the most important thing because you can learn certain things from films and they can become 
great opportunities for teaching others and also for remembering certain ideas or forming, becoming a great example or metaphor for an idea that can be very powerful and, and, and very impactful, but you have to think critically about them in order for them to, to function in that way. And I think there, you know, there, there's no shortage of examples. Now, the next question, I know we're, we belabored that point too much, I think, because the new question came in, and that's a hint that I'm t- over my time. You know? This isn't like the presidential debate where they tell you to be quiet. You, you, you know, they, they just send you the next question. Now, how can one connect to tefillah and talking to God when one doesn't even know where to start? Okay, well, that is a, a fabulous question. No, no, it, it, I'm just joking with you, don't worry. No, that, that, that's a fabulous question because first of all, if you're on our chat, you know that I've been doing these little mini essays. It's an opportunity for me to um, self-promote, which I'm very bad at. So, but since you asked, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I've been sending, putting in the chat um, these little essays, mini essays or posts about tefillah. I think we've done five or six of them so far. And... Um, and I, I've been dedicating them to the memory of Dorina because I felt like it was a, a very appropriate because she was so much about authenticity, being genuine in everything that you do. And I feel like that's what's missing a lot of times from our tefillah, that we are doing it mechanically. We're, we're, we're engaged in a mechanical type of tefillah without genuineness. And really tefillah is, lehit palil means to judge yourself, to, to assess yourself, to evaluate yourself. And if a person is, is, is engaged in tefillah superficially, it's not a real tefillah. So the important, you know, so I thought it was very appropriate to connect to her, but, um, but in, as, a, as a topic in general for all of us in our growth, how can you connect to tefillah and talking to God? Well, I think it's always, the, you know, the key is to realize that a person doesn't pray to God. A person really prays before God. A person is... Omed lifnei Hashem. A person is standing in the presence of God. And the real language of tefillah, lehit palel, in Hebrew, is called the hit pa'el form of the verb, which means it's something that is an internal process. It's about changing ourselves. And I've been explaining in the, um, these little essays that I'm sending out into the chat. And if you haven't seen them, if you're not in, in our chat, you can also get them on my website, which is where I have them on my, the, the website blog. I've been posting them each week on um, ydvh.org, which is the website that I created a few months ago to start housing all of the divreton, all of the audio lectures and so on. And this tefillah series is there. And talking about how tefillah is really about reflection on the self. It's about seeing ourselves from the perspective of Hashem, so to speak. That's why it's tefillah lifnei Hashem. It's really prayer before God. It's standing before God, which means to see myself from God's perspective, if you will. And that is an important change from the way we usually think of tefillah, because we oftentimes think of tefillah as trying to pressure God to do something different than what he's doing now. And to think more, and to persuade God to be uh, uh, to act in uh, more in line with how we'd like things to go, um, as opposed to thinking, how should I? How can I look at my life, or look at my actions, or assess my choices, or evaluate them more in line with what He would want, and how He sees it, and how I fit into His plan? Because ultimately. Hashem is the one running the show and we need to be able to fit in with and adapt to 
his plan, not the other way around. So lehit palel means to look at ourselves from the perspective of Hashem. And that's why there's always a prerequisite of tefillah. For tefillah to be meaningful, there has to be some learning. There has to be some understanding. That's why it says a person, that there's a pasuk, there's a verse in Mishlei that says, Mesir ozno If a person turns his ear away from hearing Torah, gam his prayer will be an abomination. Which means to say, if a person doesn't have proper understanding, then there's no way to really have a tefillah. There's no way to really have a prayer without a desire to understand. Because we understand what Hashem wants from us. We understand the principles and values of the Torah. And then we look at our life and say, am I really living it? Is that what I'm really about? Is what I profess and what I believe, does that match up with how I'm living my life? And so when we stand before God and we pray, we have to be thinking about each area of our lives and recognize that in every area, there's a connection between that area and our relationship with God. And that's the problem. That's where the problem begins, where there's a disconnect. So when we say, Hashem, you give wisdom, you give knowledge, we ask ourselves, am I gaining knowledge in order to fulfill God's will, to come closer to God because I realize it's a gift God gives me to draw me closer to Him? Is that really what I'm doing? Because if that's why I'm learning, then is that, does my learning really match up with that? Is that the kind of learning? Am I doing enough learning? Am I learning the right things? Am I doing it the right way? If that's really what I believe learning is about? What if I say, Hashem, return me to the Torah, help me to, to improve myself. Why do I want to improve myself? To show off to other people? Do I want to improve myself so that I can feel better about myself? Or do I, which is, of course, a good value too. A person should have self-esteem. I'm not knocking that, but... That, that's not the ultimate goal. Self-esteem is a means to an end. I, I hope everybody realizes that. Self-esteem is what we need. We need to value ourselves in order to be able to do great things. But self-esteem itself is not the goal. So when a person is, uh, you know, wants to improve themselves, do they want to improve themselves to avoid guilt? Do they want to improve themselves to tell everybody about how much more religious they are? Or are they really doing it because they realize this is an opportunity God gives them to fully actualize their potential? When we ask for forgiveness, we're asking for forgiveness. Why? Because we, uh, because we feel bad? Um, is it because we want, uh, we want God to make us, uh, to excuse us from our bad, uh, from our failings so that we don't have to think about them anymore? Or no, because we realize that Hashem giving us a second chance is an opportunity to come closer to Him. And the truth with, and that is with everything that we, uh, that, that we seek and everything that we pray for. The question is, how do we see? We ask God to heal us, but are we taking care of our own health? And if we are, are we doing it for the right reasons? You know that I'm sure you all know that, you know, being healthy has now become a, an end in itself also. These people are like, spend every single day of their life at the gym, spend three hours at the gym and all they drink is protein shakes and they have to photograph every single thing that they eat and put it on Instagram, guys. We know these people, right? So that is a kind of a, uh, is a healthy living as it's, for its own sake, like the body is a goal in its own right. But that's not the reason why we pray for health. If we really want health, we should first of all be taking care of our health. And secondly, realize that the gift of health is a gift so that we can serve God with the body that we have and with the energy that we have. 
when we when we uh, are uh, experience any kind of challenges in the realm of health, it also reminds us that we're not the ultimate masters of the universe. It's a humbling experience. Hashem has created obstacles in the way of health as well, and that requires us to seek things to you know uh, to seek solutions like develop vaccines, for example, for diseases. Um, and the idea is that Hashem's healing us for a purpose. Okay. Hashem, there's a purpose in the healing. There's a purpose in our seeking of healing. So when we, I'm not just, I'm not, you know, trying to be healthy so that I can make a website and promote my uh, my protein drink or my workout routine or my videos of, uh, you know, of, you know, how to uh, how to become uh, a bodybuilder or whatever. But I'm doing it in order to serve God. So when we are praying, when we're engaged in tefillah, we're looking at every aspect of our life in light of our relationship with Hashem. That's why it's let palel lifnei Hashem. We always pray before God. We don't have to inform Hashem of anything. What we need to do is inform ourselves. That's why it's lehit palel. We're judging ourselves. We're clarifying how we look at our own lives. And hopefully if a person really engages in tefillah and they say, wait, I'm asking God to bless me with material things, but why? God is tovu metiv lakol but He gives us he gives us livelihood. Why does he give it? Doesn't the fact that God is the one giving us parnasa mean that God has a purpose in doing that? Or does that just mean that I am the center of the universe and God is going to deliver to me whatever I want? Obviously not. It's because Hashem is trying to bring the best out of me and I need the tools to do that. So he gives me livelihood. But when I think about my livelihood as a tool that God is giving me to achieve a higher purpose, that changes the way I pursue, pursue my livelihood. And that changes the reason why I want to uh, pursue the livelihood that I am. And that might even change the kind of livelihood that I pursue. Because I now think of it differently than I did before. So when we really look at every aspect of our lives and see that it's part of God's plan and that it connects to God's plan, so that's going to change the way we view all of those elements of our lives and recalibrate them because now we're going to go about them differently. We're going to, uh, we're going to approach them differently. If we approach the seeking of knowledge differently and we approach self-improvement and we approach health differently and we approach uh, our livelihood differently and we approach justice even, we ask Hashem to help us establish justice or kibbutz galuyot, to get, it's the ingathering of the exiles to Israel. What is the reason for that? Is that just because we want a nationalistic pride of having Israel? No, there's a divine purpose in that. Hashem is mekabetz nidche amo Yisrael. He's bringing us together. Hashem is the one who wants there to be justice on earth. I don't want justice just because when I go to court, I want to make sure that if I'm right, the judgment is in my favor and not against me. That's not the reason. I want justice because that's what's best for society in the eyes of God that there be fairness and truth and not suffering under the weight of injustice and selfish agendas and ambitions of people and conflict and lack of harmony. That, that's in the, in the eyes of God what is best and, and healthiest. And so that's going to change the way I go about that. So everything in my life, whether it's my personal, uh, my personal pursuits or it's my, my communal pursuits, when I reframe them in terms of what God's will is and what God's purpose is, it changes the way I relate to them. And that actually is what happens when I do that, new doors open up to me. 
Because once I have that new perspective, now there might be blessings lying in wait for me that I never would have seen before that now I'm going to discover and are going to come out precisely because I changed. Not because I changed God, but because I changed and became more aligned with God's will. Now, blessings that he has hidden along the way. Imagine, for example, that you go on a detour. Instead of going in the main road, you go on a detour from the main road that you were on. Sometimes you discover, oh, a little coffee shop that you never knew was there. Or a little beautiful spot, that little park that you didn't know was there. Or whatever it was that you never noticed and you never would have noticed before. Why? Because you went off the path that you were on. You never expected to go off that path, but you did. And then you discovered a blessing. And that's how Hashem brings blessings into our lives because we change our direction and then all of a sudden we discover a blessing that Hashem had hidden there all along that we never would have found. And that's how Hashem brings blessing into our life. Or I should say that's one of the ways Hashem brings blessing into our lives through tefillah because we change ourselves. Think about the story of Chana that we always use as the paradigm of all tefillah. And I spoke about it in one of the essays. I think the second one, the first or the second one, I can't remember now, of that series that uh, she is really the exemplar of tefillah because she changed her whole reason for wanting children. She changed her whole interest in, in wanting children from a personal desire to a desire that there be better leadership in the, for the Jewish people. Realizing that her suffering was just a symptom of the corrupt leadership of the Jewish people, the spiritual level of the Jewish people was so low, and therefore she wanted to bring into the world someone who would correct that. And once she changed why she wanted children, and therefore she was going to respond to that child differently. She was going to treat that child differently. She's going to make sure that that child grows up in the Bet HaMikdash and becomes a great leader instead of just being somebody at home who draws cute Mother's Day drawings and puts them on the wall or whatever. You know, a totally different attitude towards motherhood all of a sudden opens the door to a completely different response from Hashem because she now changed herself. That's really what tefillah is. So it's a much harder work. Again, almost everything, if you go with the simple approach, it's easier, you know, it's, it's more pleasant, it's easier, but it's not as transformative. It's not as substantive, it's not as real. If you're going to get to something genuine and real, it's going to require work. It says that the rabbis would spend three hours on their Amidah. They would spend, an, it says, Chasidim Arishonim, Hayu Shoim Shalosh Sha'ot. They would spend three hours in tefillah, an hour preparation, an hour saying the Amidah, and an hour afterwards, thinking about what they just did. Three hours on each one. They spent nine hours praying per day. Now, obviously, that was a, a, a exceptional. That was, a, you know, extraordinary. But the idea that they spent, they recognized that it was a labor. It was a process of development. It wasn't something that could be rattled off quickly. That is what real, really tefillah is about. So what we need to start is, we need to start in terms of understanding what the different ideas are and, um, and, you know, and, and developing our understanding of, of Hashem's plan and Hashem's and, and the values Hashem wants us to live by so that then in tefillah we can apply that to ourselves and we can see in each aspect of our activity how it connects to the divine plan or how it could better connect to Hashem's plan for us. That is real tefillah and that's how we change. Okay, and that's how the, that's how the tefillah makes us more worthy of Hashem answering us. Oh, it says, if anyone wants to join the chat, please let Tara know through WhatsApp. 
That's a, that's a side advertisement. Yeah, now, why does Jacob's name, keeping referred to back and forth from Jacob to Israel and back and forth, even a, that's a good question. That's a, that is a, uh, a more specific question than some of these more general questions. But why is Jacob's name keeping referred to back and forth from Yaakov to Israel, from Jacob to Israel, back and forth, even after Hashem says his name is now Israel? That's a very good question. The, it's, it's, um, if you look at the three Avot, so two out of the three Avot, their names changed. Avram changed to Avraham, and Yaakov changed to Yisrael. Yitzchak never had a change of name. Now with Avram to Avraham, the change was a complete replacement. He lost the name Avram, and he became Avraham, because now his role, he, he developed to a new level where his role fundamentally changed. And therefore, in changing his name, Hashem is saying your identity has now reached a, a new plateau. You are, you are a different person. Yaakov changed to Israel, but he didn't lose Yaakov because sometimes he's still called Yaakov. A lot of times he's still called Yaakov. And once in a while he's called Israel. I would say probably more of the time he's still called Israel, Yaakov than Israel. Although it goes back and forth. Right? What's the reason why? Because Yaakov's change of name wasn't because his individual identity transformed. It was because he had a dual identity. He had two roles. Yaakov as an individual was Yaakov that had his own personal development to go through, struggles to go through, challenges that he had to overcome and he had to grow and he had to learn and he had to improve himself as an individual. But he was also Yisrael. Yisrael is the father of B'nai Yisrael. The Jewish people are not called Yaakov. They're called Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael. Yisrael signifies the role as the founder of a nation of Israel. He was the first time that there was actually a small nation, okay, because it was only 12 you know, sons and he had his 12 sons and his daughter that comprised the nation and their children, 70 people. Okay, by Mashadi standards, that's, that's a walk in the park. That's, not, that's, ba- that's just barely a family. That's, you know, not a nation. But at that time, that was very big. So that was, an, that was a, a nation already, a small nation. So Yisrael is his role as the father of the nation. No other one of the Avot had that because Avraham had only one son who continued on after him. It was Yitzchak. Yishmael was sort of out of the picture. And Yitzchak had only really Yaakov. He didn't have to, uh, he did not establish a nation. But Yaakov had two roles. He had the role of the individual patriarch Yaakov with his own particular characteristics and, uh, and a trajectory of development that he goes through. And he's also Yisrael, which means he's also the father of the nation of Israel. If you look very closely, and I'll leave this to you as homework, because I'm not going to go through every example. With, everyone doesn't have a chubash open that we can flip through every example. But if you look carefully, you will see that whenever the name Yisrael is used, it's referring to something about Yaakov that relates to his role as founder of the nation of Yisrael. Not just passing on the tradition to one son, but actually establishing a community of the 12 sons and daughter that are going to be the nucleus from which, you know, around which the nation of Israel will form. That's a totally different role. When it says Yisrael, it's always referring to him in that capacity as the one who's the nation builder or the nation founder, as opposed to Yaakov. When it calls him Yaakov, it's still referring to him as the individual Yaakov. So if you asked him, what is your name? He said, Yaakov is my name. 
Yisrael is more like almost a title, or it's the name that refers to the aspect of him that is beyond just himself, that is, that is Yaakov as nation founder. He's called Yisrael. It's a name that refers to that role. If you look very carefully, you'll see that the Torah is very particular in referring to um, Yaakov when it's talking about his individual uh, I'll give you a very, very, very simple one example, but there's many examples. It says, Vayeshev Yaakov, Be'eretz Megurei Aviv, Be'eretz Kenan. I know everyone doesn't have a Chumash in front of them, but when it talks in the beginning of Parashat Vayeshev, it says, Yaakov lived in Eretz Kenan. That was it. But then it says, um, it says, Ele Toledot Yaakov. These are the children of Yaakov. Again, it's talking about Yaakov as a father, as an individual, right? But then it talks about, V'Yisrael Ahav et Yosef Mikol Banav. Yisrael loved Yosef more than all of his other sons. Why all of a sudden it switches to Yisrael? Because of what it means is that the reason why Yaakov loved ya- Yosef was not because of his personal... See, that's the key thing. The Torah with every word teaches you something. It wasn't because personally he had an affinity for Yosef more than the other boys. It was because of his Yisrael status that he had that. Meaning that he recognized that Yosef would be the best successor as a leader of the emergent nation of Israel after him. So therefore, he chose Yosef to invest more time and, and energy in Yosef because he saw that. Not because of the Yaakovness, because of the Israelness that he decided that Yosef would be the, um, the right one to carry on the, uh, the leadership mantle uh, after him. So that's, the, that's usually the difference. And if you look carefully, you'll see that whenever it switches to Israel, it is Yaakov taking on that national role, that destiny-oriented role, looking beyond himself, seeing the emergent nation that's coming from him, as opposed to Yaakov, which is more limited to his, per, his individual and personal struggles and growth. Why was it okay for biblical figures to have multiple wives? Well, it's a, it, that is a, a good question. I will, I will say this, that none of the avot, ever chose to have more than one wife voluntarily. So Avram, for example, never really wanted to have a wife other than Sarah. Sarah said, I want you to marry Hagar because I want you to have uh, whatever it was. It wasn't exactly a marriage, but I want you to have have a child. And so she introduced uh, Hagar. Yitzchak never had a second wife. Yitzchak was always just with Rivka. And then with Yaakov, we all know the story. Yaakov comes in and he really wants to marry Rachel. We can debate whether that was the best choice or not. There's a whole, that's a whole discussion. He wants to marry Rachel. He gets tricked. He marries Leah, but then he still wants to marry Rachel. So he gets the original wife that he wanted. And then Rachel is very upset that she can't have any children. So she pulls a Sarah style thing and brings in her maidservant. And then, of course, Leah, feeling that she is not able to bring as many children into the world that she, as she like, brings her maidservant. So really, it was never a, what we would say, lechatchila. It was never the, cho- the ideal choice of any of the avot, the original choice of any of the avot, to have a second wife. Seemingly, if Yaakov had married Rachel, it's really hard to, to deal in counterfactuals and wonder what would have been if things were not the way that they were. But seemingly, if Yaakov had married Rachel, and Rachel had had children right away, there never would have been any more wives. Because the reason why Leah comes into the picture was because of the switch. The reason why 
the first maid servant comes in is because Rachel can have children, and then once that starts going on with the you know the uh, uh, the building of the nation and who's bringing more children and so on, so then Leah brings her maid servant in, and it becomes a whole picture of four wives. But really, it was never. It seems like ideally, the original vision was to have one. So, the Rambam actually says in a couple of places that the avot that that the uh, in one of his letters he says <coughs> that the that you you don't see that the great people of our the Nevi'im especially the prophets ever had more than one wife because having more than one wife meant that a person had a very strong libidinal urge they you know they weren't able to uh, master their libido and therefore they wanted more uh, they wanted more outlet for their uh, sexual instinct and energy um, to be able to uh, uh, you know, in a permitted way, so they had more than one wife. But it, but the Nevi'im would never have that because a Nevi'im, a Navi, by definition, is someone who has absolute mastery over their desires and and is you know is is complete has completely subdued their desires and directed the the energy of their personality towards the service of God. So they wouldn't have that distraction of wanting more wives. So they never would do that unless there was some uh, specific. Uh, reason why they needed it because they needed to bring more children into the world or something like that. But there was that was never considered an ideal. In fact, um, it would be considered an excess from the perspective of uh, you know of, of what the ideal is. So you see that really m- most of none of the nevi'im would have more than one wife as a choice, and even most of the. Uh, of the figures that we look up to and admire in Tanakh don't. So somebody pointed out, yeah, so uh, I'm not sure if this came from you directly, but, um, or if it's someone else's comment, I never know, it's anonymous, but that's part of, you know, that's part of the situation. But um, what about David Melech? So David Melech is a little bit of a unique case. First of all, he's not a Navi, so he, he wasn't a prophet, even though he was a very, um, you know, a great spiritual personality. He did have more than one wife. The kings oftentimes did, and, um, and and we know that Shlomo Amelech did. And a lot of times kings would have more than one wife for political reasons, because it was a way of, even, you know, the, uh, and the same was done in, uh, you know, in the, uh, among the, um, the um, many other monarchies in history, that they would have, they would marry uh, the daughters of other kings, or they would marry other figures who were important in order to solidify alliances and to, uh, and and to uh, build their political empires. So that was uh, part of the way that they did that through marriage. So that was one reason why kings had a lot of wives. In the case of David Amalek, it also could be that he had a tremendous energy. Um, it's, it happens to be a, um, uh, a, a matter of seemingly historical fact, but at the very least anecdotally, it seems to be true, that a lot of very charismatic leaders, a lot of people who are charismatic teachers and leaders have a very strong energy to them and a very a very uh, uh, large wellspring of instinctual energy actually that they tap into and that they direct uh, in their you know in their projects and that's why it seems to be very common to find that these great spiritual personalities or these great artists or these great um, creative personalities also end up in a lot of trouble with uh, members of the opposite sex because they they have all of this energy and it gets the best of them. And in the case of David Amelech, we know that he had this situation with Batsheva where it got, it got the best of him. So um, he mainly had it under control, but obviously there was an element that, um, you know, that, uh, uh, you know that, that was not fully mastered and that got him into trouble. So 
it was okay for them to have more than one wife, mainly if the question is why is it okay, so technically it's okay because of the, uh, the objective of having children. That's the reason why, because since a man can have more children by having more wives, he was allowed to have it. But it was never a recommended path. Uh, it was never considered ideal because a person should try to uh, keep their, um, you know, keep everything balanced in their life and not indulge in an excess of whether it's romantic pleasures, sexual pleasures, uh, pleasures of food, any of the bodily pleasures, we should always keep in uh, balance and we should always keep in, um, uh, you know, in moderation. So it was never an ideal, but it was allowed mainly because uh, in the political case of the kings to allow them to create the alliances they needed to create. And in terms of uh, ordinary citizens in order to allow them to have more children because in certain cases where they couldn't have children with one wife, they would have a second wife. Like in the case of Chana, she was, uh, you know, there was Chana and there was Penina because Penina was able to have children and Chana was not. So that was the most common reason for people to have a second wife was that they were not able anymore to have children with the first one. What is the most important sefer to learn as a start to learning Torah? That's a really good question, a very hard question actually. Um, I could give so many recommendations to you. I think that um, my first and most basic recommendation to anybody is to try to gain as much Hebrew skill as you can. Because um, as long as you're dependent on translations and you can't access texts in the original, you're always going to be limited in level of understanding and in what's accessible to you because not everything is going to be translated or not everything is going to be translated well. So being able to develop some facility with Hebrew so that you can access Texts in the original language, I think, is really critical. The Rambam actually says it's a mitzvah. He was asked by, in one of his letters also, by, by a convert, could he please translate Mishneh Torah, which is his book of, a compendium of, of all the laws of the Torah in one book. Uh, could he please translate it to Arabic? And the Rambam said, no, I want people to, uh, I want people to, to, to learn Hebrew. So I, I don't want to translate it into Arabic. So I, I, the, I think that learning some Hebrew is really critical so that a person can access original text. And even if it's very difficult, and it is difficult, and I don't want to understate that, and it can be a big challenge, I really, am, I, I really uh, encourage people to try the, be the best they can to gain some facility with Hebrew, for sure. That's number one. Um, in terms of texts to learn, definitely the Chumash is the most fundamental text that we have. The five books of the Torah is the most fundamental text that we have. And being familiar with that is... Uh, absolutely critical. So, and everything is going to be based upon that. But let's say a person has a familiarity with that. Um, so what's the most important sefer to learn? Obviously the most important sefer to learn is the Chumash. The question is how to learn it and how to go about learning it. And for that, there are many resources that a person can access. Um, but, I th but I think that that's got to be the, the person's first goal to really try to have a full understanding, a knowledge of um, Chumash, the five books of the Torah to the best of their ability and to, to the extent possible in the original language if they can know it in Hebrew. And which commentaries are going to be available to them is also going to depend to a certain extent on their facility with Hebrew. A great English commentary, really, that is, it's, it's a little bit challenging to use, um, but it's very deep, is Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Hirsch's commentary on the Chumash. It's in English, but it's, it's a very beautiful and deep 
commentary on the Chumash that is, uh, uh, you know, that I, that I really recommend. It can sometimes be over your head. It can sometimes be over my head. But overall, I think it's, um, it, it's very worthwhile. He also wrote a book called Choreb in Hebrew, but it's called Horeb in English, H-O-R-E-B. Now, this is a book that I've always recommended to people, um, but I recommend it with, um, with one caveat. The caveat is that it's a very hard book to read because it was actually originally written in German, of all languages, and translated into English. And it's translated into an English that is a tough English. It's definitely a college-level English. So um, it's, it's not an easy book to read. It's not the easiest book to read, but it is extremely worthwhile book to read um, in terms of getting the foundations of Judaism. It's called Horeb, H-O-R-E-B by Rabbi Hirsch. I really recommend it as an introduction to the sort of the big picture of what Judaism is about and what the mitzvot are about. Highly recommended. Another wonderful book to familiarize yourselves with is called Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch is now translated in English in a couple of versions. I think, it was, I think even Art School translated it now. I'm not sure. That is a book that for every parasha of the Torah gives all of the mitzvot that appear in that parasha. Now, obviously, in the early books, the, the first book of the Torah of Bereshit, there are not that many commandments that come out. But of the 613 mitzvot, obviously only a few of them, a handful, are in the book of Bereshit. After that, starting in Shemot, there are a lot of mitzvot. For every parasha, he gives the mitzvah, a reason for the mitzvah. Now, you know, obviously, um, there are a lot of different reasons that can be offered for any mitzvah. So that, that's somewhat his own thoughts, his own ideas of what the reason might be, the benefit of that mitzvah is. And then some of the basic ideas or guidelines or rules of that mitzvah. So you learn this book of Sefer HaChinuch. If now you know the Chumash and you read that and now you have a sense of all 613 mitzvot, what they're about, what they mean, a little sense of maybe what the reason is behind the mitzvah and some of the applications of the mitzvah. It really gives you a literacy in terms of... Um, in terms of the mitzvot. So I recommend Chumash again. Of course, the whole Tanakh really, all of the Torah Shebikhtav, um, but the Chumash is most important. Sefer HaChinuch. And of course, the Rambam's Mishneh Torah is a wonderful book to be familiar with and to know because what the Rambam did in Mishneh Torah is he brings together everything that you need to know that isn't written in the Tanakh. That's what he attempted to do. Meaning, all of the philosophy of Judaism, all of the ethics of Judaism, all of the values of Judaism, as well as all of the mitzvot and the halachot of Judaism, all in his book. Now the book, I don't want to make it sound like it's a book that you could hold in your hand. It's, four, it's a 14 volume book. book. It's more like a series than a book. It would take uh, quite a long time to go through the whole thing. But the first couple of um, the first couple of books of it, the first two or three books of the Mishneh Torah, um, which relate to things that are of immediate practical uh, application in Jewish life. Uh, it's so valuable to know those books, especially the first one, Hamada, the first book of the Mishneh Torah, to get the foundations of Judaism, extremely important. So there's lots of different texts, but again, just to review the things that I mentioned off the top of my head, you know, Chumash, and, and the whole Tanakh, if you can, the whole Tanakh, with as much Hebrew as you can. Maybe a good commentary that's accessible to you that's basic, but if you're looking for something deeper, Rabbi Hirsch's commentary is really, really helpful, and Horeb that he wrote is really, really helpful for giving um, a picture of a lot of the values of Judaism and the philosophy of Judaism. The Rambam's Mishneh Torah is excellent, and Sefer Chinuch 
is also excellent, um, even if you have to get it in, um, in a translation. Uh, the next question that came up, and obviously there's so much more to learn, but I'm asking, we're talking about where to begin. Now, can, now, after you're finished with that, in 10 years from now, ask me, what the next, uh, ask me what the next thing is. Now, can one be an Orthodox Jew and gay is the next question. Is that an oxymoron? That was the next question that was asked. Now, the thing that I explained, and I've explained many times, um, is that the, there's a difference between be, being an Orthodox Jew. The word Orthodox is somewhat of a mis- misnomer because Orthodox means correct belief person who believes in the 13 principles of Judaism and believes in the truth of the Torah, I call that person Orthodox Jew. Now, does that mean that they necessarily observe all the details? No, even the most religious person doesn't always observe all the details. We have a mistake, uh, you know, there's a mistake that's made um, in in nomenclature, in the use of the term Orthodox, because Orthodox really refers to belief. A person can be Orthodox and not be a fully practicing because even a person who's the most religious sometimes fails in their practice. So Orthodoxy means belief and conviction and, and, and devotion to, to the Torah and, um, and not necessarily perfect observance. Now, the, at the same time, um, we should understand that when the Torah talks about homosexuality or talks about a person being gay, it's referring to, first of all, um, not to a... Uh, sexual orientation, but it's referring to behaviors. It only re- deals with the behaviors of the person. It doesn't. Re- it doesn't deal with the identity of the beha- uh, of the person. So there's no contradiction between a person who has certain desires or inclinations um, uh, of a sexual nature and their belief uh, or dedication to the values or the principles or the tenets of the Torah. There's no contradiction between those two and there's no reason why there should be a contradiction between those two. Now, how do we relate to those who are gay or living a, a gay lifestyle? This is a, there is a social uh, element to it and there's a religious element to it. But as I spoke, um, you know, a, a year or two ago when we, on, on Shavuot, when we had, a, we had a discussion, we had a Q&A of uh, everybody in the, uh, the night of Shavuot and, and somebody raised this question as well. And it's important to recognize one thing, and I, I, I emphasize this because um, I think in some circles this, this point is lost, and it's, it's a critical point. The Torah doesn't forbid anything because it's distasteful or because it's disgusting. That's not the reason. And so unfortunately, when the Torah says something and it's translated through the, um, in, you know, in English by people who have certain preconceived notions, it comes out wrong. So when the Torah talks about homosexual behavior, it says to'eva. Now, this is translated by the King James Bible or whoever rendered it in English as abomination. But this is not really the sense of the term in the original Hebrew. And I'll give you an example how I know that that's true. Idols are called to'eva also. An idol is called to'eva. In fact, non-kosher food. It says, lo tochal kol to'eva. Don't eat any to'eva. Nobody finds the average uh, non-kosher food. There are some non-kosher foods that we might find disgusting, but I wouldn't say that that characterizes all non-kosher food. Definitely not. So the to'eva does not mean something which is viscerally disgusting. And this is a mistake that was bequeathed to us by Christians you know, the Bible pounding preachers who said it's an abomination, it's an abomination, it's an abomination, and conveyed the idea that there is a visceral, emotional distaste. But Torah doesn't deal with emotional distaste because the Torah also says don't eat blood. 
Now, does a person want to eat blood? The rabbis say, you see that even though a person naturally wouldn't want to eat blood, the Torah still tells you not to eat blood and you get reward for not eating blood. It says you have a long life because you didn't eat blood. So the, so the, the Mishnah says actually, if a person, from abst- by abstaining from something that they don't even want, they wouldn't even naturally want, they get a reward. So definitely from abstaining from something that they would want, they would get a reward. So the idea is that we don't abstain from things because we like them or dislike them emotionally. That's not the motive force. That's not the cause. In fact, the Gemara Masachet Nadarim says, a person shouldn't say, I don't want to eat non-kosher food. It's disgusting. I don't want to eat a cheeseburger. It's disgusting. I don't want to eat bacon. It's disgusting. They shouldn't say that. The Gemara Masachet Nadarim says, a person should say, I would love to have bacon. It looks delicious. But Hashem said, I can't have it. Why is that important? Because if the only reason you don't eat something that's non-kosher is because you think it's disgusting, you're no higher than an animal. The whole idea of not eating certain things or of controlling our instincts is to raise ourselves up from the level of the instinctual. But if the only reason we don't eat those things is because of an emotional or instinctual instinctual reaction, so how is that a religious behavior? That's just like the reason I don't eat chopped liver because it's disgusting, in my opinion. I tasted it one time. It was the worst thing I ever tasted. I tried it again a few years later and again it was the worst thing I ever tasted. Or cilantro, disgusting. Why does anybody put cilantro in food? I don't know. But you know, there's actually studies on it that show that people either love or hate cilantro. Very interesting. There's nobody who like thinks it's okay. People either love it or hate. I'm in the hating corner. Fine, some people love it. All I'm saying is, if that was the basis, so then should I make cilantro non-kosher? No, I don't say that. I just don't eat it because I don't like it. Now, that a person who doesn't eat something or do something because they don't like it or because it's disgusting is not doing a religious action. They're not doing something to fulfill the will of God. They're not rising above their natural inclination. There's no kedusha. There's no sanctity or holiness in what they're doing. They're just following their instinct and their feeling. So that's not what the Torah tells you to do. It doesn't say don't worship an idol because it's disgusting. It calls it a to'eva. What does to'eva mean? So again, here the Talmud helps us. It says that to'eva is a contraction of two words, to'eba, which means to'e means to make a mistake. You're making a mistake in this by doing this. This is a mistaken thing to worship an idol. To try to embody the divine in a physical form is a mistake. It's a, it's a serious mistake. A toiva means that it's something which is a fundamental mistake. Okay? But it's an intellectual mistake. It's not an emotional mistake that you're doing something disgusting. It's not, a, it's not something abhorrent to us emotionally. It's something intellectually that contradicts our fundamental beliefs, our fundamental ideas. So how does homosexuality relate to that? Because we see sexuality in, the human, uh, in human nature as being uh, designed for the purpose of creating a family, for the purpose of perpetuating the species, for a higher purpose than instinctual gratification. Now, in our current society, sexual enjoyments and sexual gratification is kind of uh, placed on a pedestal as an end in its own right. But the Torah sees that as a mistake. To'eba, a person who elevates the sexual gratification um, it isolates it as a pursuit in its own right is making a mistake about that. That's how the Torah views it. So therefore, um, the um, from that uh, from you know when we look at it that way, it's saying that what's wrong about homosexual behavior is that it is placing sexuality 
um, in a, uh, you know, it is, it is making sexuality or sexual gratification or pleasure uh, into a pursuit in its own right, separate from the role that it has in perpetuating the species that it was designed to have. And it's, it's, ele- it's separating it from that natural function and elevating it to a status in its own right. And that's the problem with, uh, just like idolatry is taking a physical thing, which is a creation of God, and elevating it to be something more than that. Um, and, 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 or eating non-kosher, like it's also called a toy vase, taking something which is, uh, uh, which is uh, uh, the gratification of the uh, appetitive instincts of eating and elevating that to something that's more than that. Or similarly, it talks about injustice, stealing and cheating is a toiva also, okay? That's also a toiva. Why? Because it's making the pursuit of monetary gain something that overrides our sense of what is ethical and what is just. That's a toiva, that's a mistake. It's more important that justice and fairness and equity reign in society than that you be able to take money, okay? That's the, um, that is the uh, idea of toiva. So is it possible to be an Orthodox Jew and gay? Yes, because first of all, gayness just means the sexual orientation of the person. And there's no contradiction between believing in the Torah and observing the Torah and having a sexual orientation of a certain type. The Torah does prohibit the behavior of male homosexuality. It does clearly prohibit that. And, but, it, but it's not condemning the person. It's saying that that activity is an activity that separates, that elevates the sexual act um, and makes it into something that is valuable in its own right, separate from its uh, function to perpetuate the species, and that would be to'eva. It is something which is a mistake. But actually, the Torah calls all of the prohibition, sexual prohibitions to'eva. It doesn't just... The, the, the preachers and the Bible thumpers of the, you know, in, in the South that talk about the abomination don't realize that it uses that same term to'eva to refer to all of the sexual prohibitions, meaning any time that the instinctual as, you know, element of our, uh, of our nature overtakes our principles and becomes an end in its own right, it's to'eva, it's a category mistake. We're making it into more than it is. That's just one example that they fixated on. I don't want to speculate as to why they fixated on it. If you're a psychologist, you have a psychology background, you might have, a, you might have an inkling as to why maybe they specifically fixated on that that prohibition. I'll leave that to those of you who've studied a little bit of psychology to speculate about that. I won't say anything more about that except to say that a great psychologist named Sigmund Freud once said that there's nothing more perplexing about homosexuality than heterosexuality because if a person is seeking pleasure, then it really shouldn't matter what the source of the pleasure is. And the fact that we find one attractive and one disgusting, no matter what direction it's in, is actually itself a mystery. Okay? So, um, and, and a person who is fully, um, who is fully uh, uh, not conflicted psychologically and doesn't have any psychological hang-ups will not find anything distasteful or disgusting about either thing. They will just choose based on a principle. That would be the enlightened view, okay? I'm not saying that a person necessarily achieves that. Maybe we are, either from our environment or whatever, hardwired to see things a certain way, and we have a bias in a certain direction, and that's fine. But, um, but in theory, the person who is 
totally uh, not at the mercy of their psyche and is a very perfectly healthy psyche would only be making the decision of a sexual partner based upon principles and ideals that they wanted to create a family, not based upon disgust uh, in either direction. That's, that's an ideal. But the, but the truth is that 90% of people or 95% are attracted to the opposite sex and are not attracted to the same sex. And that's you know, what makes the world go round, literally. And that's why we're, that's why we're all here. But uh, we don't, I just want to make the, the important point to me is that number one, we don't condemn a person because of their orientation, number one. And number two, we condemn the activity because of what it represents philosophically and religiously, not because it's disgusting, because disgust is a subjective matter. It's not an objective matter. And the Torah doesn't prescribe to you what you should feel disgusted by or what you shouldn't. It only teaches you what you should think about certain behaviors and what behaviors you should choose, what behaviors you shouldn't choose. But it doesn't legislate to you how to feel about uh, you know about things, or that, or tell you that you should base your decisions on feelings of uh, either attraction or disgust. It doesn't talk about that at all. <laughs> what is the best or first argument you give to an atheist to explain why you believe in God in general? So, actually, I think I might have talked about this in my uh, in the in the podcast that I did with Karen. I think I mentioned it. Um, Generally, what I, what I find is um, the best or first is, I think, the same for me. In my opinion, most atheists don't really have a disbelief in God. They have a disbelief in religion. Um, and they've been brought up with an idea of God that is a very childish idea, either of an old man sitting in a throne floating in the sky that does magical, uh, you know, all kinds of magical supernatural things, or they've grown up believing in Jesus or some idea of God that is um, a, a, a less sophisticated idea. And so th- that's really what they're rejecting. They're actually, I always say to atheists, the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Because most of the time, the God that they reject is not the real God anyway. They're actually closer to the truth than the people who believe in a God that is a God fashioned in their own image. Um, the, uh, uh, so the best, what I will, would say to most atheists uh, as my first argument to them and what I think really is, is, is the truest argument is that the evidence for the existence of a mind behind creation is the fact that there are laws that, are, that govern nature. And that laws that are intelligible and abstract and that can be understood by your mind only came from a mind. And I will tell them that I don't care what, I'm not saying anything about what that mind is. I'm just saying there's a cause behind the order in nature. And that cause is something non, that isn't just the physical makeup of the universe itself. It's something beyond it. I don't know what it is. And that's really the Jewish view anyway, because we don't claim that we know what God is or who God is or that we can in any way define God or describe God. So it's really accurate to say that something caused this universe to come into being and to be organized by laws that are mathematical formulas. 
extremely complex mathematical formulas and extremely consistent mathematical formulas govern the universe, it had to have come from somewhere. That somewhere is God. That's what I'll tell them. And usually I've found 99% of the time in my experience when I take that approach with a so-called atheist, at the end I'm able to get a concession, concession from them. Okay, but that's not what most people think is really God. What you're describing is not what most people call God. But okay, I can accept that there must be a cause of that. I just don't want to call it God. Because to them, the idea God, the word God, evokes associations to things that they think are fairy tales and silly and, so, and, and absurd. And, and so they reject the idea of God because of what the word means to them. But if you define God differently, and you say God is just the cause behind the laws of nature, nature and the laws that govern it, that's all I'm saying. There's a cause behind it. An unknown cause, an unknown you know, invisible cause that is beyond our understanding, which basically is the Jewish definition, the Jewish concept, the Jewish, you know, the Jewish approach, more or less, that they can usually accept, that they can usually, uh, you know, they can usually go with because it's, you're, you're agreeing with them that the fairy tale idea of God is not true. So, and, and to me, I think that is the best argument for the existence of God. I, I don't see any, I've never seen or heard any objection to that that was reasonable. Einstein himself said, Einstein not being a religious person, but being a person who believed in God, said, you look at nature and you see that it's like walking into a library filled with books written in a language we don't understand, but written by somebody. We know they're written by somebody, but we don't know, but, but it's written in that we're decoding the language. That was what he saw, and I think that that's what anybody who looks at nature, looks at science, sees, and it's very obvious, and it takes special pleading and special resistance to not be willing to see that uh, if you're really intellectually honest. And that's why I always think it's so funny when atheists will write idiotic things like, um, there's absolutely no, why do people believe in God with absolutely no evidence? And I always say, if you're talking about religion, a particular religion, so then you can argue that religions have less or more evidence to support them. But you're telling me there's no evidence for a creator? There's a universe. Where did it come from? The universe came into existence. The universe organized by laws that are so complex we're still barely scratching the surface of understanding them. What do you mean there's no evidence that there's a mind greater than ours that, that, that created it? Don't call it God if you don't want to, but there's something there. And, and that usually they're willing to, uh, to acknowledge, to accept it. Yeah, I think that it's getting later and we're losing, uh, because, we're, because it's getting later, a lot of people had to sign off. So maybe we should hold on to the, maybe we should hold on to the uh, questions for a second round. Uh, I think that people were interested. It seems like we got a, you know, a lot of interest, but maybe we should wait and, and save them for next time. Because um, it seems like a lot of people have to go now because we've already been overstaying our welcome in their living rooms. Okay.